Welcome back to Reading Through the New Testament. I hope you're doing well this week. We are wrapping up the book of Romans here in week 27, the week of uh, July 3rd through July 9th. We are wrapping up Romans, starting in Romans chapter 14, and we're head, heading into uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. So we've last week we looked at, uh, we really emphasized Romans 9 through 11, really helping us understand that section of scripture that can be that can be difficult to to grasp and to 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 understand but we saw it ended with worship which then leads into the last section of the book of Romans which is about the practical ways that we are to show love uh, to our neighbors to honor God out of gratitude for the great grace that we have received this secure salvation um, and so in light of the justification that we have been given in Christ in light of the fact that we can be certain that his word will never fail because his promises are sure and his purposes are steadfast. In light of all of that, we leads us to worship and then to give of our whole selves in sacrifice to him out of gratitude for grace received. So Paul in Romans 12, he begins highlighting the things that they ought to do, how they how they ought to live, what the disposition of their lives should be, how this should reorient who we are and how we live. In Romans 13, he highlights the fact that we are to uh, submit to the authorities, to the governing authorities. We are to submit to them because they are ministers of God. We are to fulfill the, the law through love. And now in Romans 14, 15, and 16, he's going to continue talking about how our lives should be uh, transformed and, and what our lives should look like in the church and, and such like that. So let's do that. Let's wrap up Romans, and then we'll kind of go into 1 Corinthians together as we begin to think about how we should read this book. And I'll give you a few uh, key facts that you can grasp um, to try to understand uh, what, what, we're, what we're saying there um, and what Paul is saying to us and what God is saying to us through that portion of his word as well. So the first thing I want to do is let's, let's begin in Romans chapter 14 because Paul opens up in Romans chapter 14 and says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. So now he's talking about Christian unity. And the reality is, is if you've been in the church for any length of time, you know that we're all different. We are different. And um, let's be honest, sometimes we, we know there are people in the church that we we might be more, uh, we can identify better or we are more attracted to their personalities um, or their likes or dislikes. And there are other people in the church that we are less attracted to as far as their personality, um, the kinds of things that we talk about, our common interests. Um, because if you think about it, that's what the church is all about, is taking people from a wide variety of backgrounds and arrays and interests and bringing them together to share one thing in common now, and that is Jesus Christ. Whereas sin really... Uh, sin really... Um, takes us and 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 destroys us in adam the gospel renews and heals us in christ and so we come together centering around him we share we have a co-inheritance with all the saints of all the ages in what christ has done for us and the forgiveness and the cleansing and the the sanctification and the glorification that is to be ours in a life with god forever and ever so, but in the, in that we have a, a wide variety of people in our church, and similarly, these people in Rome are going to have a wide variety, including Jews and Gentiles. Think about it, right? 
It would have been very odd if uh, somebody was to bring pork to the church potluck or, you know, it's the seventh day of the week, the Jewish Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath. And some people are saying, uh, you know what, uh, we need, we should really keep the Sabbath like we'd used to at the synagogue. And um, some people are saying, no, I don't want to do that because I've never done that before. I'm not a Jew. And so Paul here is trying to help these people to walk through some of these issues. Um, and also some people who are weak in the faith, he says. They they actually, they, they maybe have more to learn, and they and God is growing them. And so how do we how do we work together? Because we're not all at the same level of, of spiritual maturity, and some of us are more mature in areas, in some areas, and less mature in others. And we're all different and at different phases and stages of, of a life spiritually and in the world and in our lives. Um, so how do we live together? Because we could see conflicts coming about. And what kind of attitude should we have in that? Well, we see some teaching here, um, here in Romans chapter 14, and this is based on this devotional. Again, I'm taking from the uh, this daily devotional, New Testament, through the New Testament in a year that I picked up um, from Parkside Church at the, at the uh, Basics Conference there. But I think this is a, a helpful little a section here on Romans chapter 14 through 1 through 12. Um, it says this, Paul addresses the topic of pe- peaceful coexistence in church congregations, The faith of some may be mature, but others' faith may be weak. This calls for mutual acceptance. Paul addresses two issues, disagreement about proper diet and various attitudes about the observance of days. In both instances, Paul warns us about judging others. Since every congregation member is the Lord's, we shall work through these matters with mutual love and respect, serving one another with the priority of building up the church rather than than enforcing our own preferences. The foundation for Paul's reasoning in this entire section is Jesus' death and resurrection on behalf of all those in the church, Romans 14.9. Throughout 14.1 through Romans 14.1 through Romans 15.7, Paul speaks of matters involving legitimate differences of opinion, not issues that arise from clear biblical commands, such as stealing, idolatry, or sexual misconduct. Where there is freedom of choice, God's coming judgment should make believers hesitant to try to do this for him. We need to be mindful of God's supreme authority over us when we are interacting with others, as Jesus himself taught, Matthew 7.1. The church should be a community that is rich in mutual support. Members sometimes need to give God space to work with people who need to grow. In all our relationships with other believers, we should embody the grace that God has shown to us in Christ. That's very helpful, isn't it? Because as we live in this church, we could bring up disagreements. And now he points out, this is not talking about things where God is clear in the word, right? So like he points out issues of sexual immorality or idolatry, or even things like, you know, um, those are things of, of, of practice or, or, or like sin between uh, people, but also, you know, with things of, of the faith, like, is, is Jesus God? Is he divine? Does he have a divine nature? Or did he come in the flesh? Um, those topics are not up for debate as far as what church, what the church should believe um, as well. So there, the, those things that are clear, we, we need to be very clear about. But there are things like this that are, that maybe we need to give space to. Not everything is a hill to die on, Right. And so we need to be aware aware of that and have patience with each other and also have the humility to realize that all of us only see partially 
Uh, We all don't see clearly fully as we should. But on the other hand, we want to hold firm to the things that are clearly taught in Scripture. And there are actually a lot of those things, all right? There's a lot of stuff that is clear. Um, And so we don't want to deny the clearness of those things. But on the other hand, we don't want to be so contentious about things that are non-essentials, uh, maybe that are preferences or things like that. So we want to be careful with those things. And, and how we approach that in the church is to have a disposition, I think, of confidence in the gospel, of great confidence in God and in his truth, but also the humility to understand ourselves that... Um, we can be prone to wonder ourselves and we want to show the same patience and humility and love towards other people that we would want to be shown ourselves. Okay? So that's from that. Romans chapter 15, however, then, you know, Paul is continuing on here. He opens up in Romans chapter 15, verse 1, and says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Notice the emphasis again, build up, not tear down, build up. Well, why should we do that, Paul? For Christ did not please himself. As it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Notice again, Paul's natural instinct again is to prove something by going back to the gospel of Christ. Well, why should we do that, Paul? Well, you remember Christ died? And think about how often he does that. Well, how should we live? Well, remember Christ died and rose again? And uh, how should we deal with this issue? Well, remember Christ died and he, he died selflessly. And remember how he loved us? And Christ, he's always going back to that. That should be our instinct too as Christians. And we want to develop that, I think, as believers to have that instinct, that disposition to always go back to Christ. So he says this and about this section, this devotion has this to say about Romans 15, 1 through 7. This section continues the theme of Romans 14. Faith in Christ does not produce selfishness, but rather a desire to do good to others. Christ gave up his own rights and dignity that, so that salvation might come to others in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. These same scriptures are still intended to encourage Christians to persevere in the call to love others. The Old Testament, Paul says, was written so that we might have hope. The whole Bible is primarily a message of hope. That hope, that is what strengthens the church to become the harmonious, worshipful, and welcoming community that Christ desires us to be. Again, great reminder of the unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, isn't it? The Old Testament was written for us as well. It wasn't simply written for those back then. We have a human authors that wrote in their time, but we have, even more importantly, a divine author of all of scripture, which unifies it together as one message, the message of God's righteousness in Jesus Christ for Jew and Gentile. That is ultimately the message of the whole Bible. The whole Bible's message unified is Christ crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. That's really what it is. And so again, these things were written for us. And so if Christ lived this way, then We should not live selfishly either. Christ was selfless. We are in him. We have been united to him. Not simply we should be like him. That is true as well. But we are now in him. Your life is connected to Christ. You need to know your identity, who you are. Even before we talk about how you should act, you need to know who you are. You're in him. Therefore, act like him because you are in him. 
Great reminders again to us. So lastly, Paul continues on. He's going to talk about the relationship still of Jew and Gentile, about how the Gentiles, right, God, Jesus became a servant to the circumcised, um, and ultimately that led to the Gentiles glorifying God. So again, the Jew and Gentile relationship continues to play out in Romans 15. Uh, Paul is wanting to go to Spain to preach the gospel there, and he still is, right, so he's talking about all these different things. And lastly, at the very end um, of Romans Romans in Romans chapter 16, we have this really, really wonderful uh, wrapping up of this most important, most important letter um, here where he says, uh, you know, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions. Um, and eventually he says, the God of peace in verse 20 will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Um, so he wraps it up and let's see what he has to say here. This is from this devotion again, this last one, um, that we'll read here from Romans. He says this, there will always be opposition to Christ's followers and their mission. This typically takes the form of divisive behavior and unbiblical teachings. People use the church and Christ's name for their own agendas. Healthy gospel ministry requires a persistent avoidance of these deadly pitfalls. God accomplishes his purposes and brings down his enemies in the end, including their leader, Satan himself. God will destroy the work of Satan, crushing him under the feet of believers in fulfillment of the ancient prophecy that was spoken in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.15. As he prepares to close his letter, Paul gives the names of his inner circle of friends who are with him in Corinth, where he is writing, Acts 20.2-3. As an apostle, Paul has a unique assignment. But effective Christian leadership is no place for hardcore loners. Paul was a strong leader, but he worked alongside others who were building on the foundation he laid. So that's a great way to end the book of Romans, right? We're working for uh, Paul here is, 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 is seeking the salvation of Jew and Gentile. He trusts in the great message that God has given him in Christ. And here he, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So just as Jesus crushed Satan under his feet, because we are in Jesus, connected, united to Jesus, Satan's also put under our feet as well. And now he also has that helpful point, right, about that if we are going to work together as a church, and this is, by the way, helpful, a good example for why, you know, here at MNBC, we have, we have uh, multiple pastors, we have multiple deacons, and we have the whole church, right, because our leadership, we really want to have that plurality, that idea that we're a team. Paul himself, though an apostle, worked with other people. He had other co-laborers, co-workers in the gospel. And so we have that as a pastoral staff. It's, I tell you what, that's one of the most wonderful things about being here at MNBC is having a group of people to, to work together with. Now, that, that can be twofold, and I think I speak for everybody probably, and that can be because on the one hand, um, on the one hand, our fleshly side and our sinful side, um, we want to sometimes go at our own. We want to do our own thing. And we are all, we all have imbalances. I know I, I have some, everybody I know, everybody I've ever met has imbalances and is not mature in every single way they should be. So it's very helpful to have that balance amongst other brothers and sisters that we can work together. Now, brothers, I'm specifically talking about the ministry, of course, but um, 
But whenever we're, we're here working together as a pastoral staff, that's so wonderful. That's what Paul had. He had co-laborers. We have that as, as our deacons. We have multiple deacons who work together to help balance each other out. But then also on top of that, as a whole church, we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. We have each other to help balance each other out because we are all part of the one body of Christ. We all need each other, and we are all dependent upon each other. We need to remember that. And so that, that has so many, um, that principle and that truth of uh, that reality that is the church and, and the way that God has set it up shows we need each other. We should all have humility like Paul did. He had co-laborers who worked with him. Um, that we that we can work together, uh, serve together, ultimately because we trust that the great God of heaven and earth is working for the salvation of Jew and Gentile through the person of Jesus Christ. Well, that's a great way to wrap up the book of Romans, I think. And um, it's a wonderful book. And, and really, I would highly recommend to you, if you're interested, um, this daily devotional New Testament, it's an ESV one, um, it's got the foreword by Alistair Begg. I'm not sure who probably did all of the um, devotions, um, and I'm sure you could probably read that if you find that somewhere. Uh, but it's very, very helpful, I think, um, and I think it would be a very beneficial. I've really liked the, reading these to you on, on, the, on the air, and I think about Romans and such like that. I think they're very helpful explanations of Scripture, very clear but also very easy to understand. So um, maybe pick that up if you're interested. But now we're going to turn our attention to another letter, because as we turn the page of Romans chapter 16, at least that's the way it is in my Bible, and I turn over, it says the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. And so now we're turning our attention to a different letter. Remember, Paul probably wrote that, that book from Corinth, Romans. Well, now we're reading a book that he wrote to Corinth. And this was probably written before the book of Romans. Um, and so Paul here is writing this book to the church at Corinth. A little few, few background facts about Corinth before we, about this, about the book before we, we go into it. It was written by Paul, of course, from the city of Ephesus, city of Ephesus, probably around 53 or 54 AD. And he's writing it to the church in Corinth, a church that Paul had established there. He had did this during his second missionary journey. You can read about that in the book of Acts, how Paul went there. He preached the gospel. They believed. And he's he's had a great, uh, I guess, maybe not a great relationship, but um, maybe a, at least a very deep and affectionate relationship, though, with this church. He's very patient with them. He loves them. And the depth of his love for this church is shown by the the, the, the amount of communication he has to have with them, but also the, the patience he has towards them, even when they reject him and push against him. So this is a church that he desperately loves. He, he wants to see them grow and be grounded in the grace of Jesus Christ in the gospel and to grow up. But he sees so many things that are, that are happening there and he addresses them. This is a city, Corinth, by the way, that was known for vice, immorality. It was not a wholesome place. And so you could imagine having a church planted in a city that's known for its immorality. Um, these people are going to stand out. They're going to be weird. To be a member of the church at Corinth, to be a believer, to be someone in Christ in Corinth, you are going to stand out. I think we're going to face something more of this. We're, we're feeling this as Christians now in, in, in the, the West and particularly in the United States. I think we're starting to feel more and more how 
we have to, we're, we're, we're becoming weirder in that sense. We're becoming odder, standing out more. It was easier to blend in and because broadly the Christian morality of our society was, 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 it was, it was there at a, at a very uh, surface level, but it was still there. But now it's becoming more and more like what we would think about. We can probably understand more of what these believers were feeling in Corinth, living in a world that was so opposite um, the way that they were, they were living. So Paul is going to highlight to them that, um, you know, what, what it's going to look like to be a Christian, some very basic and practical issues um, to how a believer, what it looks like to be in Christ in Corinth. And also, we'll see what it looks like to be in Christ in in our own society and time and place now as well. So he's going to deal with a lot of different issues in this letter uh, to this church at Corinth. And he's going to deal with church divisions uh, because they're dividing amongst each other. He's going to talk about uh, issues related to immorality, disputes, idolatry, worship, the resurrection, which is being denied by some. So a lot, a lot of issues. So as we think about the outline of this book, we got an introduction, but then really the first section is chapter 1, verse 10, through uh, all the way through the end of chapter 6, which where Paul's going to respond to some reports that he's heard from people. And he's heard from various people about things that are going on at the church of Corinth that he is very concerned about. Um, they're dividing over uh, their favorite Christian ministry leader. <laughs> so some are following Apollo. Some are saying they follow Paul. Some follow Peter. Um, they're dividing over that. Um, they're also having immorality in the church that they are allowing. Um, there are disputes. People are suing each other, going to law against each other. They're also, Paul's going to talk about the fact that, listen, just because you may think you're free, your freedom is limited to serving Christ. Um, and so, so all those things. And then the second half, beginning in chapter 7 through the rest of the book, really, uh, into chapter 16 before he concludes the letter in, in chapter 16, is dealing with a, a letter that the Corinthians had written to Paul. They had written a letter to him, and now he's responding to their concerns beginning in chapter 7. He deals with the issues of, of marriage um, and sex. He deals with the ideas of of partaking in idolatry in the feast because um, we maybe we'll talk about some of that background because it's kind of odd for us today but I think the applications are probably the applications might be uh, pretty pretty strong actually uh, pr- we could maybe think about some principles there for our own day and age today uh, he talks about Christian worship including the Lord's Supper and uh, and stuff like that he talks about spiritual gifts um, and the place of love in the Christian fellowship and what a worship service and the gathering should look like he defends the importance importance of the resurrection in Rome in uh, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, um, because we had people there who were denying the resurrection in the church. And Paul is saying, no, we cannot deny the resurrection. And then he's also calling them to offer uh, a relief offering that Paul was taking in Romans chapter 16. So, or not Romans chapter 1 Corinthians 16, that's what he's going to deal with as well. So that's kind of a quick overview. You got two big chunks in the book. Uh, the last uh, 1, 10 through 6, uh, chapter 1, verse 10 through the rest of chapter 6, all the way through that is one section. The second section is chapter 7 through uh, chapter 16, verse 4. All of that is a big section, which is a response to their letter. So let's kind of uh, begin looking here as Paul opens up and, and 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says this, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place called upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Eventually, he says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And he's going to talk to them about how they were, they're supposed to be united in Christ. And he's also talking about the wisdom that is found in Christ, um, because maybe some of them were following people for the wrong reasons. Some of them may have been following people who just sounded smart or people who came off well, or they were follow, they were judging things from a very worldly perspective, because um, and so he's talking about the the word of the cross is wisdom to those who are perishing. If we judge things from a fleshly perspective, then we are not thinking the way we should. And he talks about proclaiming Christ crucified and the wisdom that comes uh, from the Spirit of God, who opens up our minds to see all of these things. So. So, for the whole of 1 Corinthians, I want to read sections of a commentary on 1 Corinthians by the famous, uh, uh, well, really, theologian, pastor, commentator, John Calvin. He lived in the 1500s, and if you've, uh, you know... Uh, if you've never actually read John Calvin, one of the things about his commentaries, which he's got most of the New Testament, he's got some that he doesn't have. He didn't do one on Revelation, but he's got New Testament and he's got a lot of the Old Testament as well. One of the things I really like about his commentaries, even though they were written, I mean, get this, in the 1500s, they're amazingly, uh, they're, they're really good and actually... I mean, depending on, if you're like me, I love reading, a, you know, sometimes I like reading old dry things, but, uh, um, and, and sometimes, I mean, I, I, maybe sometimes the, the reading might be a bit dry, but the point I'm trying to say here is his interpretation of scripture is really good. He's not like some people in the past who would do some really fanciful things and you're like, I don't really think that's what you're, I don't think that's what the Bible says. Um, Calvin's commentaries are really helpful because they really get to the core message of each verse that he's talking about. And he really, really was trying to be faithful to the text of Scripture um, and to really help us to grasp what God was saying in each verse. And he was really trying very hard to be faithful to interpret the text of Scripture um, as he got it. And he was a scholar and and very influential in in the Protestant Reformation, and our Baptist forefathers greatly appreciated him uh, as as well. So I want to read a section uh, on this based on this verse because Paul eventually in 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 First Corinthians chapter one he's going to talk about you know the wisdom of this world. He's going to talk about the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. And he says this beginning in verse twenty six. He says, "For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were." wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And this is the verse I really want to focus on from from Calvin's uh, commentary here. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, 
righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay, so I want to talk to you about this section here from verse 30. He says, if you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us, Jesus Christ became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What does that mean? What does that mean? He's trying to highlight to them the importance of Christ Jesus uh, because they're dividing over everything, but you notice they're not united in Christ. It's so important for us as believers, as a local church, to be united on the message and the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul here is going to highlight who Jesus is to us and for us in this passage of Scripture. So I want to read from John Calvin uh, just to give you a little bit of a taste of, of, of what he's like. And um, yeah, so let's see. Beginning of verse 30 here, this is his, um, this is his uh, uh, section. In case they might think that some of his sayings did not refer to them, Paul now shows how they do apply to them and that they have no life except from God. Right? That's a, by the way, that's a great reminder. Right? We have no life except it comes from God. God is the source of our life. He says this, For the emphasis lies in the verb, you are, as if he said, your origin is from God, who calls those things that are not, disregarding those things which appear to be Your existence is in fact founded on Christ, so that you have no cause for pride. And he is not speaking of our creation only, but of that spiritual being into which we are born again by God's grace. So he's saying we have no cause for boasting, right? That's what he's going to eventually say, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, we have no boasting that we can do in the presence of God when we are born again by God's grace. It's only he who gets to boast of what he's done. So he says here, who was made unto us wisdom from God. And Calvin says this, since there are many who, while they do not wish to withdraw deliberately from God, do however seek something apart from Christ, just as if he alone did not contain all things in himself. Paul tells us in passing what and how great are the treasures with which Christ is provided, and in doing so, he seeks to describe at the same time our mode of existence in Christ. For when Paul calls Christ our righteousness, the opposite must be understood about us, that in us there is nothing but sin. And so it is with the other terms in this sentence. For here he ascribes to Christ four titles which sum up all his perfection and every benefit that we receive from him. So what is he saying? He's saying, I want you to see that everything that we have and we need is in Christ. He says we must not seek anything apart from Christ. Remember the what we believe. We believe salvation is found in Christ alone. We must not seek anything, but accept it comes to us in this person, in this man, Jesus Christ our Lord. First, Calvin says, Paul says that he has been made our wisdom. By this he means that we obtain absolute perfection of wisdom in him because the Father has revealed himself fully in him for us, so that we may not desire to know anything apart from him. There is a similar passage in Colossians 2.3, In him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. We shall say more about this in the next chapter. Secondly, Paul says that he has been made unto us for righteousness. By this he means that in his name we are accepted by God, because he atoned for our sins by his death, and his obedience is imputed to us for righteousness. For since the righteousness of faith consists in remission of sins and free acceptance, we obtain both 
through Christ. Thirdly, Paul calls him our sanctification. He means by that, that we who are in ourselves unholy by nature are born again by his spirit into holiness that we may serve God. From this, we also gather that we cannot be justified freely by faith alone if we do not at the same time live in holiness. For those gifts of grace go together as if tied by an inseparable bond, so that if anyone tries to separate them, he is, in a sense, tearing Christ to pieces. Accordingly, let the man who aims at being justified by God's free goodness through Christ take note that this cannot possibly be done unless at the same time he lays hold of him for sanctification. In other words, he must be born anew by his spirit to blamelessness and purity of life. Men find fault with us because in preaching the free righteousness of faith, we seem to be calling men away from good works. But this passage clearly refutes them by showing that faith lays hold of regeneration just as much as forgiveness of sins in Christ. On the other hand, notice that while those two offices of Christ are united, they are yet distinguishable from each other. Therefore, we are not at liberty. Indeed, it would be wrong to confuse what Paul expressly separates. So what is Paul talking about? Let's stop real quick there. Those terms, righteousness and sanctification. Paul here is saying that on the one hand, Christ is our righteousness. And he's really talking about our justification there. Because Christ is our substitute. So Christ took our place and we are now accepted by God. Given that clean and perfect record, we are forgiven of our sins only because of what Christ did for us. But secondly, whenever we believe in Christ, we don't simply get justification. We also get sanctification. Christ is our sanctification, as Calvin points out. And this happens as well when we are born again. So we believe, we are accepted, we are justified, get that clean, perfect record. But at the same time, we also get another gift. You get two gifts, right? For the price of one, in a sense. It's, it's kind of what he's saying. It's, they're connected here. It's a package deal, in other words, right? Sometimes, right, you get the whole burrito. You get the whole enchilada uh, of Christ. Christ comes not simply to justify us, but he also comes to give us a new life and to sanctify us to change our hearts so that we begin now to walk and live a life that is holy. Whereas before we, we lived only in unholiness and in sin uh, and by ourselves, by our nature, we are unholy and we do unholy things. But now in Christ, we are washed and sanctified. And now we want to live a life of gratitude for grace received. We live a holy life. And so he says that if we try to cut those two apart and say, well, you can get justification, but God won't sanctify you. Well, Paul says it's as if you're cutting Christ in pieces because Jesus came to do both. And he also points out, now, now whenever I say this, he says, I'm not saying that we, we put those together because there are some people, right, who, and Calvin was facing this. There were people, and particularly the Roman Catholic Church um, at that time was the Roman Church was, was saying, well, justification happens. You're accepted by God because of what you do. And so as you grow in holiness, as you become more and more obedient, then you eventually may attain a state of being acceptable with God. And so they confused justification and sanctification. They confused the fact that Christ is our righteousness and our sanctification together. And Calvin says, no, we need to make sure we distinguish these things. We don't want to say, we don't want to pull them apart too far and say that they, they, you know, right, you can be justified without being sanctified. On the other hand, we also don't want to say that we are justified because of what we do. So we want to have them distinguished, but not separated, but also not 
mingled together and mixed together. I hope all of that makes sense, what I'm saying. Um, so that's what, that's what Calvin is trying to help us to be reminded of. And, and, and honestly, sometimes we, we hear these things, and, and I, I know because it can be difficult to get all this stuff in our heads, but I can, I can, I can say this. It's, it's worth it to grasp some of these basic things um, and to read and to try to learn these things because it will impact the way you live. It will impact the way you, you approach uh, church and your whole life um, because it's because we have been justified that we now live a life of sanctification. Justification is the foundation for our sanctification. It's not the other way around. So important. Uh, Calvin continues and says, Fourthly, Paul teaches that he was given to us for redemption. By that he means we are delivered by his goodness from all slavery to sin and from all the misery which flows from it. So redemption is the first gift of Christ to begin to be begun in us and the last to be brought to completion. For salvation begins when we are extricated, then in other words, right, we're rescued, we're taken out from the labyrinth of sin and death. I like the, the idea of labyrinth, right? We're, we're in this maze, this thing that we cannot get out of. Have you ever felt like you're in a labyrinth, a, a maze uh, where you, you're like, uh, and, and think about one of those giant corn mazes or something crazy like that, but there's no exits and you're just constantly running and running and running, trying to get out, trying to get out. That seems to be the image here where Calvin's saying that's what sin and death is like apart from Christ. We're running everywhere and there's no exits and we can't find our way out. And we're just confused and lost. Well, salvation begins when God rescues us from that maze, that labyrinth of sin and death. It's a very helpful image actually, isn't it? In the meantime, however, we sigh for the final resurrection day, yearning for redemption as he puts it in Romans 8.26. But if someone asks how Christ has been forgiven to us for redemption, I reply that he made himself the price of redemption. That's what Paul's going to talk about later. He says, right, he bought us with his own blood. So Christ is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. Calvin concludes this verse by saying this, finally, let us seek not the half or some part, but the totality of the benefits in Christ, which are listed here. For Paul does not say that he has been given to us as something to add on to, or to be a buttress to righteousness, holiness, wisdom, and redemption, but he ascribes to Christ alone the complete fulfillment of them all. So stop real quick there. What is Calvin saying? He's saying this. He says, listen, everything is found in Jesus. It's not as if you need to believe first and then come to Jesus or muster up repentance first and come to Jesus or get some your life together and then come to Jesus or that Jesus can be an add-on to your life now or, or can help you live a more holy life or maybe Jesus can help you be more acceptable with God or maybe Jesus will help you be more wise before God or maybe Jesus will help you get out of the maze of sin and death. No, Jesus is the one who does it all, every single aspect, 100%, not 99.99999999, 100 complete percent belongs to Christ alone. No one else. He is our complete salvation. So we tell all men and women and boys and girls, we say, look at Jesus Christ. Here he is. 
He's come to save us. He's come to open our eyes so that we can see. He's come to cleanse us so that we are made whole. He's come to forgive us so that we can stand upright in confidence and approach the throne of grace knowing that we have been pardoned. He is the one who has redeemed us so that we know we are no longer slaves to sin, death, hell, and the devil. We've been extricated, taken out of, rescued from in this amazing rescue operation, this labyrinth, this maze where we were lost in sin and death and couldn't find our way out. Everything, everything, the totality is found completely in Jesus Christ. Now, you talk about something to take to the world and something to comfort your own soul. Man, on the days that you don't believe, Christ comes to you. Read the Bible, and he creates faith in our hearts. On the days that you're struggling to repent, don't try to stir up repentance in your heart. You can't do it. Christ has been exalted to give it, to give repentance. That's what Acts says in Acts, I think, chapter 4. He has been exalted to give repentance. And so we look to him to give us our repentance. We look to Christ for everything, every single blessing. And the amazing thing is he gives them all. He gives it freely. I am the bread of life, he says, who came down from heaven. I am the water. Take me. Here I am. That's what Calvin's trying to emphasize to us. Everything, the totality is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. He says this, wrapping up, he says, but since there is scarcely another passage in scripture which gives a clearer description of all the offices of Christ, all those roles he plays for us, that's what he's meaning, all the offices of Christ, it can also give us the best understanding of the force and nature of faith. For since Christ is the proper object of faith, everyone who knows what benefits Christ gives to us also learns what faith is. Faith is receiving Christ and all of his benefits, all of the blessings he brings to us, the the spiritual blessings that God just dumps upon us freely in Christ our Lord. Okay, so that's Calvin on that section. One last section I want to read is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. Um, And I want to... See, let me turn my 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 commentary to that because Paul here says, "I determined to preach nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified." And he talks. He says, "Yet among the wisdom, the mature, we do impart wisdom." He says, "I didn't come to preach to you in plausible words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power." But he says, "But whenever I say this, I'm not saying that our message is really foolish. I'm saying it looks foolish to the world, but it really is wisdom." And that's the ironic thing, isn't it? The world's foolishness looks wise in their eyes, but our wisdom that we preach that comes from God in Christ Jesus our Lord looks foolish to the world. There's these amazing reversals, these ironies that take place. And he says eventually, he says this, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. He says this, Having concluded that all men are blind, and having deprived the human mind of the power to rise up to the knowledge of God, Paul now shows how the faithful are delivered from this blindness. By the faithful, he's meaning the believers, believers in Christ, right? Uh, Paul now shows how the faithful are delivered from this blindness, namely by the Lord honoring them with a special enlightenment of the Spirit. So he's talking about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. 
Therefore, the doler the human mind is for understanding the mysteries of God and the greater its uncertainty, the surer is our faith, which is supported by the revelation of the Spirit of God. In this, we recognize the boundless goodness of God, who makes use of our defect for our good. So he's talking here about how the Holy Spirit is given to us. The Holy Spirit comes to us in order to um, open our minds up to grasp what is being said to us in the gospel. What he's saying is none of us would really believe this stuff if the Holy Spirit didn't come and show us that the foolishness of the cross is actually the wisdom and the power of God. So he says this for the spirit searches everything. Calvin adds, he says, this is added for the encouragement of believers that they might rest more securely in the revelation, which the spirit of God gives them. It is as if he said, let it be enough for us that we have the spirit of God as witness for in God, there is nothing too deep for him to penetrate for that is what searches means here by the deep things. You must understand not secret judgments, which we are not allowed to investigate, but the whole teaching of salvation. This would have been set before us in the scriptures uselessly if God did not lift up our minds to him by his spirit. So God, he's saying here that God comes and takes the things of God, which are too deep for our minds to grasp. And the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit himself comes and opens our eyes and helps us to see these things. We love the Holy Spirit. We love his person and his work and what he has come, come to do for us. We, we, we believe in God, the Holy Spirit. We worship him, um, the sanctifier and the enlightener. So he says this uh, in verse 11 now. He says, Paul wishes to teach two things here. One, the teaching of the gospel can only be understood by the witness of the Holy Spirit. And two, that the assurance of those who have such witness from the Holy Spirit is as strong and firm as if they were actually touching with their hands what they believe. Oh, that's a vivid thing, isn't it? (laughs) And that is because the Spirit is a faithful and reliable witness. So, notice what he says. First of all, the teaching of the gospel can only be understood by the witness of the Spirit. That's what Paul is trying to say here, right? He says, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So why do some people not believe the gospel of Christ? They do not have the Spirit. They do not have the Spirit. It is impossible for anybody to believe the gospel message, the wisdom of God, on their own ability. It is impossible. Paul says this, no one, not simply most people, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So if you are going to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the wisdom of God, you have to have the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God comes and opens our eyes. So the, the reason, uh, right, the, the amazing gift that is salvation, God gives us his Holy Spirit who opens our minds to understand the things of God. Think about that. It is impossible for us to believe the gospel apart from the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus said in John 3, you must be born again. The Spirit blows where it wishes, the flesh and eventually, right, remember, the, the, Jesus would say uh, in John 6, I, the words that I'm speaking to you are spirit 
and life. The flesh is of no avail. So the flesh, the human ability, human mankind apart from God can do nothing apart from the spirit of God who gives life and who enables us to grasp these things. So that is the role of the spirit in the life of believers. He takes the things that belong to Jesus. He takes the truth about Jesus, his cross, that to us initially looked foolish. And then whenever we believe, we ask, well, why in the world did I believe? Well, it was because the Holy Spirit came and washed your mind and gave you the new ability to be, he caused you to be born again. You're a new creature to now you can understand the things given us by God. And so he says, this assurance that we have through the Spirit, he says, is such a strong and a firm one as if we were actually touching with our hands what we believe. Now, that's so important, right? We don't actually touch Jesus, do we? We don't touch justification. Has anybody ever been able to do that? Has anybody ever been able to touch sanctification or touch any of these things? And remember what Calvin says earlier, those are not simply abstract concepts. Those are found in Jesus. Jesus is righteousness. Jesus is sanctification. Jesus is wisdom. Jesus is redemption to us. We don't touch him. I've never seen Jesus. None of us have. Though we have not seen him, we love him. And But our faith, the faith that the Holy Spirit brings to us, and the Holy Spirit works in us and sustains in us, creates such a confidence in us that it is almost as if we can touch it ourselves. That's why I think, I think again, Calvin is so helpful. He gives us those, those images. That's what faith does. It's almost as if we're touching Christ. We can see it by faith. We don't actually literally touch him here. One day we will see Jesus, the incarnate Lord, but here we do not. Um, and so, anyway, just very helpful things. He says this, uh, Paul uh, proves this by the likeness, the similitude, we could say, uh, of our spirit. For everyone knows his own thoughts well, but others do not know what is hidden in his heart. Similarly, the purpose and will of God are such that they are hidden from all men. For who was his counselor? It is therefore a holy of holies, inaccessible to men. That's right. So he's saying, right, who can get inside God's head? <laughs> right. Sometimes my wife will sit around. She sees me thinking. She says, "What's? what are you thinking about? What's going on? I can just see your your head's going, right? Um, I'm, and one of my sons is a lot like that too. I can see he's just in his head. And similarly, it's like, how can we get into the head of God? Well, it's a holy of holies, inaccessible to us. But Calvin says this, but yet if the Holy Spirit of God himself brings us into it, that is, if he makes us sure of those things which are otherwise hidden from our perception, there will be no more room for hesitation. For nothing that is in God himself escapes his spirit. So the spirit knows what's going on in the head of God because he is God. And then we get that same spirit. Therefore, we know what's in God's head. We know we have the mind of Christ. Think about that. That's what Paul's later going to say. We have the mind of Christ. Now, there's stuff here I do not understand, but that is deep stuff. That should blow your mind to make you think, what an amazing reality I have. God wants us to get out of our own heads and into his head. He wants us to not think our own thoughts anymore, but to think about his thoughts 
to see his plans and his purposes. And that's why we have the Holy Spirit now, to take us out of our heads and to bring us into his head, into his thoughts, into his life. Very good. So he, he says this, uh, so he's hiding there, and obviously uh, we don't understand, we, we don't comprehend everything God has to, God uh, is. We only know what he tells us, and that's, there's, so there's obviously the, we don't want to, um, we don't want to push it too far. Um, uh, so he says here, uh, let me think here, what do we want to say here from Calvin? Um, he says, uh, the word of God is a kind of hidden wisdom to whose loftiness the weak human mind does not reach. So light shines in darkness until the spirit opens the eyes of the blind. Okay. Well, I think we want to stop there, but that's some a little bit to think about as you're reading through the New Testament this week in 1 Corinthians. The wisdom now that we have from God that unites us as a church is around the message of Jesus Christ. And it's foolishness to the world, and we're going to look foolish to the world, aren't we? But the reason is, is because they, uh, is that the natural man cannot get into the head of God and understand his mind. But now, God brings us, in a sense, into his mind, into his head, to see the wisdom of the cross of Christ. And we are given the Spirit, who is the Spirit of God, now comes to us. And the Spirit is the mind of Christ. So that now our thinking and our actions and our whole life are now governed by something outside of ourselves. We often talk about it, right? And there is a truth in it. We think we, we bring Jesus into our life, or we bring Jesus, or the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts. And there is some truth into that. I don't want to deny that Christ indwells in us. That is so true, and that is very comforting. And the Spirit is in us, and that is comforting. But there's also the truth uh, that's also true that we, Jesus, we don't, Jesus doesn't come into our life, but we get into his life similarly. It's not simply that um, uh, the Holy Spirit comes uh, to change our minds, but he comes and brings us into God's mind because he is the Spirit of God. He is God. And so when we look outside of ourselves, we see the wonderful truth that everything is given to us in Christ and we are made known. These things are made known to us and which should make us very grateful for the Holy Spirit's work in our lives because he comes to make these things known to us and to grow us in it. And we need him as we read the Bible because these are the thoughts that flow from the infinite mind of God. And apart from his enlightening power and making the blind like us to see, we cannot see these things. We cannot understand them. But we have the mind of Christ. Thank you for listening. I hope this has been encouraging. Look forward to being with you next time, next week. Take care and God bless.